It's hard to find any positive descriptions of the San Carlos Agency. Though it had been the headquarters for American Apache policy for years now, and had basically taken control of all the reservations around it, that didn't make it that nice of a place to actually be. In 1882, Lieutenant John Burke was simply outraged by the fact that the Apache had been forced there by what he saw as a corrupt and conniving ring of officials profiting off their misery. He would sarcastically write, quote, Therefore, they must all be herded down on the malaria-reeking flats of the San Carlos, where the water is salt and the air poison, and one breathes a mixture of sand blizzards and more flies than were ever supposed to be under the care of the great fly god Beelzebub. End quote. But more than the environment, San Carlos had other problems, which Burke with the light delves into. Quote, the general rascality of the agents who have been placed in charge of them, the constant robbery going on without an attempt at concealment, the selling of supplies and clothing intended for the Indians to traders in the little towns of Globe, Maxie, and Solomonville, the destruction of the corn and melon fields of the Apache, who have been making their own living, and the compelling of all who could be forced to do so to depend upon the agent for meager supplies, the arbitrary punishments inflicted without trial, the cutting down of the reservation limits without reference to the Apache. End quote. Yep, it was bad times all around at San Carlos, as far as Burke was concerned. But that was about to change. Because the one man that everyone agreed could do something about the situation was back in the territory and was taking stock of all of this alongside Burke. And not only was he ready and willing to do something about it, but also he was even then formulating a plan about how to best coax all the Apache who had fled back to that very same spot. I'm your host, David Ruckhausen, and you are listening to AZ, The History of Arizona. Episode 95, Hell's 40 Acres. Welcome back, everyone. Last week, we followed Geronimo and the Chiricahua with him as they tried their best to avoid the traps and ambushes that were waiting for them during their sojourn in Mexico through most of 1882 and into 1883. This week, I want to back up a bit and talk about the events that were swirling around where they had left, some against their will, in April 1882. After all, this is a podcast about Arizona history, so I think I'm contractually obligated to talk about events actually happening in Arizona to avoid charges of false advertising. So, let's turn our attention back to San Carlos, and in particular, who was calling the shots these days. Because we need to dispense with not only Joseph C. Tiffany, who had been the civilian Indian agent at San Carlos for two years, but also General Orlando B. Wilcox, the department commander for Arizona for the past four and a half years. Tiffany would resign from his post on June 30, 1882, so roughly two months and a week after Geronimo and his men had forcibly removed Loco and his people from San Carlos. But unlike some other Indian agents, 
Tiffany was not resigning in disgrace. Well, not completely in disgrace. No, instead, his health had been steadily declining, causing him to have to leave San Carlos in April before the breakout had even occurred. By June, his health had gotten to the point where he simply could not do the job, and so he had to resign. One article I found in the Journal of Arizona History suggests that this disease was none other than malaria, the killer of Apache at San Carlos, that had spread to his kidneys. Now, Tiffany did have the misfortune of being slandered after his departure as the prototypical corrupt Indian agent and a scapegoat for everything wrong at San Carlos. From what I have read, this was both unfair and just a way for people at the time to score some cheap political points. Tiffany was not perfect by any means. He had made several mistakes and maybe even mismanaged some money. Not embezzled it, just mismanaged. But he had still accomplished many important things, like building a school and an irrigation system. However, charges of corruption and all sorts of evil doing were leveled against him. The silver lining to this cloud was that his scheduled trial kept getting pushed back and eventually everything was just dismissed when it became apparent that the charges were just not valid. Part of the reason Tiffany was hung out to dry is the other new arrival on the scene, or should I say the other person returning to the scene. And that would be none other than George R. Crook, whose campaign to round up the Apache onto reservations in 1872-73 had now become legendary. Crook, known to the Apache as Natan Lupin, which translates either as Chief Wolf or the Wolf Leader, was universally respected and had spent the last seven years engaged in the Great Sioux War, then happening simultaneously on the Great Plains. I'm not going to get too much into his time there, but suffice it to say that he hadn't had the same success that he had had against the Apache. He had squared off against the Sioux and Cheyenne at the Battle of Rosebud, which had forced him to retreat to his post, and that possibly contributed to General George Armstrong Custer being eliminated at Little Bighorn. I will also note that though he is most famously associated today with Geronimo, during his time in the Midwest he also squared off against that other famous fighting Amerindian, Crazy Horse. But orders came down on July 14, 1882 from General William Tecumseh Sherman in Washington, reassigning the Brigadier General to his old stomping grounds in the Department of Arizona. The reasons for replacing Wilcox, who had been in the top position since 1878, are myriad, and believe it or not, it wasn't because he had done a bad job per se. And again, you'll get a variety of opinions from the time about his service. Wilcox had spent more time than his predecessors focused on things at San Carlos, but there was no getting over the fact that there had been several breakouts during his tenure. And in the aftermath of Geronimo kidnapping Loco and his people, Wilcox had engaged in some petty quibbling over whether the renegade had entered the U.S. in Arizona or New Mexico, potentially trying to pass the blame grenade over to his counterpart in that other state. He also got into some public feuding with Colonel Eugene A. Carr, the guy who had arrested Nak Kline, the dreamer, and then had to fight off angry Apache and his own scouts. Carr was trying to pin the blame for the embarrassing incident on Wilcox, and Wilcox sent the blame right back to Carr. 
Finally, at one point, he had taken offense to an order issued by General Sherman and went around the entire chain of command by complaining directly to the president. However, it should be noted that in his orders, Sherman wrote that Wilcox carried no blame for what had occurred at San Carlos and that the general had done his best. In fact, Wilcox would be promoted to Brigadier General in 1886 and would retire with that rank after serving as the commander of the Department of Missouri. So, this was a reassignment, not a demotion or a firing. He also had the fortune to go out on something of a high note. You see, in the wake of the Dreamer's death, a Sibiku Apache warrior named Nati Otish had begun stirring up trouble, and he kept at it for nearly a year. On July 6, 1882, so just over a week before news of Wilcox's reassignment came down, Nati Otish and 60 men had actually raided San Carlos itself, which was always going to provoke a pretty strong reaction. During this raid, his men also shot down three Apache police officers and John Kolvik, known as Sibiku Charlie, who had taken over the post for Albert Sterling, the chief of police that had been killed the previous year when Geronimo had grabbed locals' people. So, yeah, the job of chief of police at San Carlos is looking pretty cursed at this point. Nati Otish also hit the mining camp at McMillanville, which we oh so briefly mentioned way back in episode 74. Then, loaded with plunder, he and his men disappeared into the Tonto Basin. Or so they thought. In reality, somewhere in the vicinity of 350 troops out of both Fort McDowell, down by Scottsdale, Fort Apache, and other posts, were on their tails, led by the indefatigable Al Sieber and several of his Apache scouts. The trail led up north of modern-day Payson and onto the Mogollon Rim, near the very foreshadowy named General Springs, which were actually named for General Crook. Sieber and the scouts were able to pinpoint Nati Otish's location, which was across the rim of a canyon for what we know today as East Clear Creek, but at one point had been known as the Big Dry Fork of the Little Colorado River. Though I will note here that there is something of a dispute over the exact location, and I have found a veritable barrage of creek names among the different sources recounting this incident. Anyway, the Apache knew that the cavalry troops under Captain Adna Chaffee, who a couple years beforehand had run the San Carlos Agency while waiting for Tiffany to show up, were on white horses, which they could see pretty clearly and had laid an ambush for. However, Sieber and his scouts had tracked the Apache and let the cavalry officers know what was about to happen. So when fighting broke out across the canyon on July 17, 1882, it was because that's what the U.S. troops wanted. Nati Otish saw the white horses on the other side of the canyon and he and his men opened fire, with the soldiers naturally shooting back. But what the Apache did not see is that while shots were being exchanged, a company of cavalry and scouts were sent to the right to try and cross the canyon and block off retreat to the north. At the same time, more troops were sent to the left to get across the canyon also and then flank the Apache from the south. 
By late afternoon, the advance from the south had managed to surprise the Apache, who retreated northward toward where their horses were stationed, only to find the other flanking company had already gotten to the horses and were ready to meet them. The Apache made a final desperate stand, but the riding was really on the wall. Surrounded by U.S. troops and with no means of escape, they were toast. In the aftermath, Nati Otish and somewhere around 20 Sibiku Apache were killed. The scouts had lost only one person, a scout who had seen two brothers and a father in the fighting and had attempted to defect until Sieber had shot the man himself. One of the lieutenants at the scene describes that in the late afternoon, a sudden monsoon storm, complete with great chunks of hail, poured down on them, allowing the rest of the Sibuku to slip away from their defeat. The Battle of Big Dry Wash, as this engagement became known, seems like a minor incident, and really it kind of is, but it is worth mentioning for one very good reason. This is regarded by many as the last battle between U.S. forces and the Apache during the Apache Wars. That may sound weird because we have about four more years of this conflict left, but from here on out, it will be small skirmishes and tense negotiations, mostly involving Geronimo. So when Nati Otish and his men opened fire on the cavalry officers on that summer day, it would be the last time that anything approaching a full-on battle between the two sides would be joined. And, just in case you are interested, in the 1930s, the Forest Service and Civilian Conservation Corps apparently erected a monument to this battle near where it occurred. So, if you feel like taking a drive down some backcountry roads in Arizona's Rim Country, give it a Google. And if any of you out there do make it, definitely snap a picture and send it my way. Okay, back to the main story. Though the orders for his new assignment came down in July, General Crook would not actually come to Arizona until September 4th, 1882. When he did, though, it was quite the entrance. I got into this a little bit when we first met Crook, but with him arriving in Arizona once again, I want to stress that he was a bit of an odd duck. As I mentioned the first time around, he absolutely loved pack mules, favoring them over wagons, and his favorite steed was a mule he had actually named Apache. He also kept everything extremely close to the vest, very rarely sharing his views or even his plans with the staff, something that we'll see in the very near future. One of the officers under him talked about how he disdained wearing a military uniform and would dress as a mule packer in a dirty brown canvas suit. My favorite bit is that in most pictures you see of Crook, he's wearing an honest-to-goodness pith helmet, which is that curved headgear you associate with English explorers hacking through the jungles of Africa or India. Or, if you prefer, picture the helmet worn by the bad guy in the original Jumanji movie. He also kept his hair long and had a full grizzled beard that he sometimes wore in two big braids. And now I'm having a hard time not picturing a dwarf from The Lord of the Rings. The same officer would also report that most junior officers weren't big fans of Crook, with a rumor going around that the general once said he had more use for a good pack mule than a second lieutenant. 
However, in reality, Crook was in the habit of hand-picking certain junior officers that he knew he could trust, and these he used to great effect, and we'll get to these as our story unfolds. For now, though, Crook's first priority was to talk to the Apache that he had thoroughly cowed during his first run, and who he actually regarded with a fair amount of sympathy. He and his entourage, including Burke, his longtime aide, biographer, and all-around promoter, made it to Fort Apache, where he met with the White Mountain Apache to discuss their grievances. As you can imagine, the Apache really leaned into this opportunity to vent about everything and anything that had gone wrong with the reservation since the beginning. Meeting with Crook on September 22nd and 29th, 1882, they recounted how they felt that the San Carlos Agency had done nothing but betray them. They blamed the white troops for betraying them during the incident with the Dreamer. They blamed the Indian agents for lining their own pockets instead of helping them. They blamed everyone for initially forcing the White Mountain and Sibiku bands to come out of their traditional homelands and settle around Fort Apache. One man named Alchese, who had been Crook's favorite scout during his first campaign in Arizona, complained that the agents talked to the Apache in one way and acted in another. They would tell them that this man was bad and that man was bad, leading Alchese to conclude, quote, I think the trouble is that they themselves are bad, end quote. Another White Mountain leader gave this analogy, quote, Our corn comes up finely. It looks well and grows fast for a time but when it is knee-high, it turns yellow and dies, and that's the way with the agents. They do first-rate when they first come, but they soon change, and instead of helping us, they help themselves. End quote. As we've seen, Lieutenant Burke, who has left us a breathless account of his idol, Crook, put the blame squarely on the semi-mythical Tucson ring, eviscerating with his pen the fat merchants and corrupt politicians that were supposedly profiting off of the crooked Indian agents. In his mind, it was those people who were keeping the whole wicked system in place. He also blamed the encroachment of Americans onto the reservation to get resources such as coal, copper, silver, and farmlands. Personally, I think he goes too far in his blame, and honestly, he gets very conspiratorial at times, but there is no doubt that he has something of a point. If this podcast has taught us anything up to now, it's that the San Carlos Agency was not the best and definitely not the most consistently run place in the world. Crook himself would write, quote, The simple story of their wrongs, as told by the various representatives of their bands, under circumstances that convinced me they were speaking the truth, satisfied me that the Apache had not only the best of reasons for complaining, but had displayed remarkable forbearance in remaining at peace. End quote. He then put a finer point on it by relaying, quote, They have been openly plundered of the supplies provided them by the government, and they spoke with bitterness of nearly every one of their agents. End quote. But what kind of endears me to Crook is that after listening to the Apache complaints, he next turned his attention to each and every officer at Fort Apache. And he did something similar before when he was originally posted to Arizona. Crook genuinely strikes me as a man who wants to understand all sides of a situation before making 
any decisions, which is, you know, something to be lauded. For the officers at Fort Apache, however, these sessions could be very intimidating. One junior officer remembers that Crook appeared gruff, brusque, aloof, and taciturn. The same officer also recalled how Burke cross-examined him thoroughly, much like a prosecuting attorney, which caused him and the other junior officers at the fort to expect some sort of court-martial or other judicial hammer to fall on them. It was only later he admitted that they realized Crook was only being thorough and what he really wanted was to get a clear picture of everything. After these intensive interviews were over, Crook issued General Order No. 43 on October 5, 1882, which highlighted where his thinking was on the whole situation. That order reads in part, quote, Officers and soldiers serving in this department are reminded that one of the fundamental principles of the military character is justice to all, Indians as well as white men, and that a disregard of this principle is likely to bring about hostilities and cause the death of the very persons they are sent here to protect. End quote. There would also, of course, be punishments for those who did not take this order seriously. If it wasn't for some of his harsher policies and tactics, it would be very, very hard not to like Crook and praise him as much as Burke does. After his tour at Fort Apache, it was time to head down to San Carlos, where he would engage with the new Indian agent, Philip P. Wilcox. No relation to General Wilcox, who has just left, and I apologize for now having one Wilcox after getting rid of another one. Wilcox didn't really have any special qualifications to be the Indian agent. One writer goes so far as to call him a political hack. Because what he did have going for him was that he was good friends with Henry M. Teller, who was the U.S. Secretary of the Interior. Both were from Colorado and come to know each other through local politics there. So imagine Wilcox's surprise that while visiting Teller in Washington, the Secretary of the Interior suddenly got the bright idea that his buddy here was the best possible person to fill this slot that had suddenly opened up at San Carlos in that faraway land of Arizona. Wilcox would later admit to one of Crook's officers that he had only accepted the job because, quote, of the salary when he could get nothing better, end quote. To be frank, Wilcox is going to be problematic down the road. And we'll get more fully into that when the time comes, but part of it came from the old problem of him trying to do as little as possible while still receiving his salary from the government payroll. Wilcox was from Denver. He loved Colorado, and he tried to spend the bare minimum time in Arizona to keep his job. He was not a fan of the place at all, saying in nicer circles that it was, quote, a very pleasant place to live if it wasn't so hot, end quote, but confessing to others, quote, Arizona was a hole not fit for a dog, end quote. One of Crook's men would wryly note that Wilcox, quote, was from Colorado and kept his word, end quote. I will also say that the cronyism and nepotism so prevalent with Indian agents came back with Wilcox, as he assigned his own son-in-law to be the reservation's sole trader, which brought in a lot of money for the family. 
But at first, everything was sunshine and rainbows as Wilcox and Crook met, and they agreed that anything and everything must be done to improve the lives of the poor Apache living on the reservation. Wilcox would tell the Denver Tribune that the general, quote, was doing splendid work, and I will aid him all I can, end quote. And that was followed by his boasting that this, quote, was the first time in the history of Indian affairs that such a thing, meaning the cooperation between the agent and Arizona's leading military official, had occurred, end quote. Wilcox instantly rubber-stamped Crook's request that the White Mountain and Sipico Apache be able to return to their traditional lands. He also let Crook appoint two of his hand-picked lieutenants to important positions at the agency. Captain Emmett Crawford, 3rd Cavalry, was given command of the Apache scouts, which were doubled in number to 250, and Lieutenant Charles Greenwood took charge of the Indian police at both San Carlos and Fort Apache. You're going to want to remember Crawford in particular, as he will be a major player in our story moving forward. As part of this organizing his department, Crook also appointed Lieutenant Britton Davis as the commander of Apache Scout Companies B and C, stationed at San Carlos, as well as making him assistant quartermaster. From here, the young, perceptive lieutenant, fresh from West Point, was witness to everything San Carlos had to offer, and would often have dealings with both the Apache and with Wilcox. The Apache, in the very un-PC way they named everything, which I love, called him Fat Boy for his stout figure. Davis was, at first, rather horrified at the state of the agency, and author Paul Andrew Hutton credits the lieutenant with coining the reservation's unflattering nickname of Hell's Forty Acres. During his first night at the reservation, he slept in the open air with both Crawford and Greenwood, and got quite the shock the next morning when he found a 10-inch long centipede in his blankets. His colleagues were unsympathetic, mainly because Crawford claimed he woke up to sharing his bed with a rattlesnake, while Greenwood produced a giant tarantula that was his bunkmate. Davis would later quip about this incident that all they lacked was a vinegaroon, what we call a whip scorpion, and a Gila monster to make the complete Arizona set. Soon after this, none other than scout extraordinaire Mickey Free introduced him to the San Carlos delicacy that was boiled pack rat. He would also eventually meet Eskimazin, the older chief whose Aravipa band had been so hurt in the Camp Grant massacre, and was impressed with the settlement his people had produced. Davis would write, quote, They had adobe houses. Fields under barbed wire fences, modern, for those days, farming implements, good teams, and cows, end quote. And his bucolic description matches Wilcox's, who also testified that San Carlos had become an Apache haven, saying, quote, They are all well fed, and all they have to do is hunt and lie about their tents and sun themselves and gamble for tobacco and blankets, end quote. We won't get into just how patronizing that statement is. Okay, we will. It's very, very patronizing. Crook would stay at San Carlos through October 13th to see how the rations were distributed to the Apache living at the agency. With the help of his trusted lieutenants and a for now willing Wilcox, he was also able to weed out some of the graft and corruption that he, of course, blamed on the Tucson ring. Quote, 
These men are vampires who gorge themselves on the blood of their fellow creatures and still hang about the San Carlos Agency, end quote, is what he would grouse in a letter to Teller. One particularly grievous example was when it was found out that the scale used to weigh the beef rations was rigged and that Tiffany had weekly been paying for 1,500 pounds of beef more than had actually been delivered. Davis also reported that it was common for those in charge of the cattle to keep their herds from water for several days before coming to the agency and only let them drink from the river right before they were weighed. The lieutenant observed, quote, In that hot, dry climate, they came on the scales looking like miniature zeppelins. The government was paying a pretty stiff price for half a barrel of Gila River water delivered with each beef. There was not enough fat on the animals to fry a jackrabbit. End quote. Crook quickly fired the contractor that had been bringing in the cows and hired a local rancher named Henry Hooker, whose integrity was unimpeachable. And it's in his reports from this time that Crook would outright say that the former agent Tiffany should face charges in Tucson. Something that must have surprised Crook as he watched the rations being distributed on October 13th is who showed up. Among the White Mountain, Aravipa, and Sibiku bands were eight Chiricahua, which was a surprise to both Crook and Wilcox. They had assumed that all Chiricahua had left the agency, either when Geronimo and Hua had broken out originally, or when Loco and his people had been escorted away. Historian Edward R. Sweeney writes that these Chiricahua were most likely an old Badonkahi scout who refused to flee with the rest, along with several others who had given up on the rough living in Mexico and had drifted back to the agency. Sweeney goes on to speculate that conversations with these Chiricahua may have convinced Crook that there were many more of their people that might be willing to come into the agency. It's a good argument because almost immediately, Crook decided to extend an olive branch. He selected a group of scouts led by a man named Navajo Bill and two women to head across the international border, find the Chiricahua, and establish contact. Apparently, Navajo Bill wasn't the biggest fan of this idea and had to have his arm twisted into going. But still, he went and would claim that in early November 1882, he and another scout actually ran across a couple of Chiricahua a few miles from the Lisos Creek battle site. These were anything but friendly, not letting Navajo Bill and his companion get anywhere close to them, and saying they not only didn't want to go to San Carlos, but threatened that if they did return, it would be as part of a war party. So Navajo Bill returned to Arizona by November 8th and reported his failure to Crook. But that was okay, because Crook might have already been formulating in his head at this point an even bolder move to bring the Chiricahua back into the fold. And if he succeeded, he would end the Apache menace in Arizona once and for all. With that bit of ominous foreshadowing, we are going to leave things here for this week, as Crook starts to dream some pretty big dreams. But join me next week when we return to Geronimo and his people as they begin to feel a little more squeezed down in Mexico. We will also see how a timely, vicious raid and the fateful shooting of one particular warrior and not another, will give Crook everything he needs to bring the Chiricahua Apache to their knees. I'm your host, David Ruckhausen, 
and you've been listening to AZ, the history of Arizona. Goodbye.